people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Well, looks like President Obama found his pen and his phone again this week, eh? We're going to chat a little bit about some of his executive orders that he's writing. Don't forget our website, aneconomyofone.com. Aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook. An Economy of One on Facebook. A little bit later in the show, we have a terrific guest Joining us, Professor Rob Nadelson. He's a senior fellow in constitutional jurisprudence at the Heartland Institute and author of the book, The Original Constitution, What It Actually Said and Meant. He'll be joining us a little bit later in the show. President Obama had a couple of interesting, and I don't mean that in a good way, a couple of interesting uh, executive orders this week. The first, I'm sure you've heard, is the letter to all the public schools in the United States saying that they should, they don't have to, they should recognize students' desired, chosen gender identity and let them use whatever restroom or whatever locker room they want to use. Now, fortunately, 12 states have sued the administration already on this stupid overstepping. Texas is leading the the charge. Their uh, governor and vice governor or lieutenant governor came out and instructed their school systems not to follow President Obama's directive. He did threaten to cut off federal funds to any schools that didn't follow his wishes. Kind of a hollow threat for a couple reasons. School year's over and... uh, By the time he could cut off funds, it'll be 2017, and he'll be out of office, and somebody else will be in office. So pretty much a hollow threat, but it it, it illustrates the depth of political correctness and how it's going out there. Now, President Obama justified this uh, directive under Title IX. Title IX. Now, Title IX was passed in 1972. Uh, that's a couple years ago. But uh, the uh, U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights that enforces Title IX, among other statutes, protects people from discrimination based on sex in education programs or activities that receive federal financial assistance. Okay, now Title IX says that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Nowhere in there does it refer to a student choosing 
their gender identity. And I, I, it pains me to say those two words together because that alone is a, a uh, politically correct phrase that they're trying to indoctrinate us with. But you look at what's happening. You look at the ramifications of this, and it all, I wouldn't say it all started with North Carolina and their law saying that you have to use the restroom that uh, corresponds to the gender that's on your birth certificate, but uh, that's kind of what lit the fire. And uh, Chicago public school system is uh, put out a directive that they are going to punish kids and administration and teachers if those people don't refer to people by their preferred pronoun. Now, first of all, it surprises me to use the word pronoun because I would venture to guess most kids in public school don't know what a pronoun is today, but uh, they coined the phrase the preferred gender pronoun. So you can't use he or she if the person says they don't want to be referred to as he or she. The uh, pronoun they're putting out there now is Z, Z-E. And uh, that's a general gender neutral terminology, Z. So now the other aspect of this is this is the preferred gender pronoun for the person who chooses to uh, be identified that way. But a person can change how they want to be identified, they can change their gender identity all the time. They, they can change it from day to day. So uh, students or employees who consciously use the wrong pronoun will be in violation of school policies on comprehensive non-discrimination, Title IX, and sexual harassment and student code of contact. They're scaring these people to the point where you can't win. You can't win. No matter what you address this person as, uh, they can say they identify by a different gender than you referred to them after the fact, and you're in big trouble. Chicago Public School says violations will result in appropriate consequences for offending staff and students. What are they, what's appropriate consequences? The school system does not require a transgender individual to obtain a court order or gender change before forcing the new vocabulary on students. Now, you know, this is beyond dumb, but um, Michigan State Board of Education, uh, just north of where I live, is uh, looking at a similar set of guidelines, only... Uh, they would push schools to allow school children to choose their name, their gender, and their bathroom without parental or doctor input. So a kid can change his name every day. So you're calling him by a different name. This is... I'm almost speechless over the stupidity of this. New York City has come out and said they're going to fine businesses that don't use the correct gender pronouns. Now, can you imagine the ramifications of this? New York City is going to fine 
businesses under a new law that makes it a violation of someone's human rights not to use their preferred gender pronoun. It's creating a policy that's going to require everybody in every interaction, every circumstance, to ask everyone what their preferred gender pronoun is so that no individual is singled out for such questions. I I mean, you know how many lawsuits this is going to create? You know how this is going to affect the economics in New York City? I mean, once again, this is beyond stupid. This is just stupid. Some people identify as gender fluid, meaning they may uh, change their preferred identity um, moment by moment, like I said before. Some people also identify as other kin. Other kin. I don't even know where that one came from. But businesses are going to be fined for failing to refer to customers by their preferred pronoun. So people are basically going to force people on pain of massive legal liability to say what they want you to say. Whether we want to endorse the political message or not. They're going to force us to use language that is politically correct in their opinion. Now, how many people are transgender in this country? 0.03% of Americans consider themselves to be transgender. 0.03. Now, what's really going on here? Because you and I both know that President Obama, Congress, the government, school systems, everybody, they don't really care about transgender people. They don't care about you. They don't care about me. They don't care about anybody but their own power. So why are they jamming these transgender rights down our throats to trigger another losing battle? Why are they doing that? Well, everything that provides an alternative identity to these people has to go. They don't want any distinction between anybody. They want to delegitimize masculinity. They want to abolish it and uh, replace it by some determination of sex or lack of it by some law or government regulation. Uh, That's what they want. That's it. They don't care. They don't care. They just want power over you and your brain and your language. So uh, that's what it's really about. It's really about a big fire so Obama can do other stuff his last few days in office and uh, be pretty much immune to any type of uh, attack. Up next, I want to look at his other executive order that he signed this week on overtime. Equally stupid and equally intrusive. I'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. 
Well, we've seen that President Obama is afraid to use his phone and his pen. I don't know what his phone has to do with any of this. Maybe he calls buddies and and they sit around thinking of the most absurd thing they can come up with, and then he signs it. But uh, the latest um, executive order has to do with overtime for salaried people. Now, um, right now, if you have a salaried person making less than $23,660, then over 40 hours a week, you have to pay that salaried person overtime. In other words, you have to back engineer how much they're actually making per hour and uh, then pay them time and a half for anything for over 40 hours. President Obama signed an executive order that raised that 23660 to 47000 476. Now, my first question is, where did he get the 476? Why the odd number? There's got to be a reason. Nothing is done by accident or random with these people. But 47,476 is the new, will be the new overtime pay uh, bogey number. So if you pay an employee a salary that's less than 47,000 a year, 47,476. If they work more than 40 hours in one week, they are going to be required, the employer is going to be required to pay time and a half for those hours. And once again, this is a a, left-handed way of raising the minimum wage or trying to, and it's going to have the same effect as raising the minimum wage. Here's what's going to happen. If uh, you have a salaried employee making 47000 even, uh, you'll probably bump them up $476. So uh, they get a few bucks more, but nothing really changes. If they're significantly below forty-seven, you're either going to switch them to hourly and limit them to 40 hours, or you're going to leave their pay the same and limit them to 40 hours. When the next pay negotiation comes around, employers are likely to lower, I said lower, the salary to compensate for paying them time and a half from time to time throughout the year. More people are going to get laid off, just like minimum wage rules, and employers are going to be incentivized to figure out ways to not be under this rule. In other words, they're going to have more automation. Uh, we saw in the last couple of weeks Burger King adding uh, uh, ordering computers, kiosks to their their restaurants. Uh, 6,000 restaurants are putting in uh, kiosks where you can just order your food without talking to an individual. Eliminates a lot of jobs. Now, the Obama administration came out and said this is going to affect more than 4 million workers and it will uh, boost wages by $12 billion dollars. Over 10 years. That's $1.2 billion an average per year. One, that's nothing. Two, none of that will happen. I guarantee you that it will not increase wages $12 billion over the next 10 years. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. And they know this because Joe Biden, vice president of the United States, came out and said, Well, you know, it probably won't happen, but it's a win-win for the employees because they'll get to spend more time with their families and hobbies and education. 
yeah, that's a win-win. They won't be able to pay for any of that stuff, but they'll have more time to think about doing it. And uh, he's probably right. They are going to have more time off. I'm an employer myself. Uh, I have quite a few employees. And uh, we're looking at the situation. It's really not going to affect our company uh, the way I read things, but it will affect some of the benefits to my employees. I'm one of the few employers that has what they call flex time. So uh, our people has to have two days a month that they can take off. And all they have to do is make up the time. So uh, they can take off a day, take their kid to the doctor, go to an event at school or whatever they want to do, and it doesn't cut into their paid time off that they might want to save up for a vacation or something like that. But now with this 40-hour rule, any of my employees below 47, 476 will have a tough time taking advantage of that flex benefit because they can't work more than 40 hours in a week. So uh, they're gonna, they, they can't make up the time in a different week that they take the flex time. And if they take the flex time, there's less time here to make it up. You see the, the catch-22 there? So it is going to affect negatively the workers. And it will affect negatively the employers. But they don't care about this. They absolutely do not care. What this is, is part of President Obama's legacy he wants to create for the middle class. But more importantly, it's a negative talking point for the upcoming election. If any of the Republicans oppose this in Congress, you can bet the Democratic side of the uh, electorate will be all over the Republicans for not supporting the middle class, not doing what it takes to be supportive of the middle class. So he's creating a talking point for the election. That's it. Coming up next, Professor Rob Nadelson from the Heartland Institute will be uh, joining me about constitutional aspect of private property. We'll want to miss that. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Professor Rob Nadelson. He's probably the country's leading scholar on the Constitutional's uh, Constitution's Amendment Procedure. He's a senior fellow in constitutional jurisprudence at the Heartland Institute and the Independent Institute. More importantly, he wrote a book called The Original Constitution, What It Actually Said and meant. Rob, welcome to An Economy of One. It is an honor to be on with you, Gary. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I I uh, was reading some articles uh, the last couple of days, and and uh, I, I challenged my producer. I said, find out how much land the United, the federal government owns in this country and uh, what they're doing about it. And your name popped up. And, uh, of course, we're 
we're fans of the Heartland Institute and, and wanted to get you on, so uh, appreciate the short notice. But you've really uh, studied the constitutional aspect of the federal government's ownership of land in this country, haven't you? Yeah, you know, when the uh, Constitutional Convention was going on, some members, uh, in particular Governor Morris, mm-hmm. wanted to retain the entire western part of the country because, of course, there were the 13 states, but then there was everything to the west of the Appalachian Mountains. He wanted to retain it as just a, a, a colony uh, <laughs> for in perpetuity, and okay. the delegates rejected that. They said, we don't want that to happen. We want the new states to be admitted on an equal footing uh, with older states. Uh, and so, uh, but unfortunately, what the federal government has done is they've kind of come in the back door, and they've created something like what Gouverneur Morris uh, wanted, because now the federal government owns about half the land in the West, or about 28% of the entire territory of the United oh. States. Now, you know, I can understand the federal government uh, wanting to own land for military bases. Uh, and I think in, in one of your articles, you talked about post offices, that kind of stuff. Why why does Uncle Sam want to own up to 88% of some of these states out there? Yeah, the 88% figure you just gave is how much of Nevada that they own. Oh, man. Uh, I think it's fundamentally all about power. I mean, they'll give you all kinds of reasons, but most of them are not very persuasive. You're right. The federal government certainly has the right to own land for the purposes listed in the Constitution. Naval bases, Army bases, Washington, D.C., um, post offices, offices for housing tax, uh, tax collectors, and so forth. Mm-hmm. But Owning, a, owning over a quarter of the country gives the federal bureaucracy, and in particular the executive branch, enormous power over Congress and over, the, and over state legislatures. And we see this in a number of different ways. You've got, you've got 12 different states where the federal government uh, owns a quarter or more. And uh, those 12 different states are represented, of course, by 24 senators and by uh, a substantial number of representatives. And all it has to do is kind of, you know, pull the strings a little bit, and uh, very often those folks snap, and, snap into, into line. It also gives them a great great power over the um, over state legislatures. One reason we, we don't have a balanced budget amendment in this country mm-hmm. is because state legislatures, where there is a lot of federal land, are scared to death of what the feds will do to them. This arose in Wyoming uh, last year when Wyoming was considering applying for a balanced budget amendment. Uh, I, I have lived in the federal land states for many years, and you see... U.S. Senate races decided on issues like how much timber can be cut on the federal lands instead of on issues that are really important to the country as a whole. Okay, so it's really kind of a, uh, I hate to use the word blackmail, but for lack of a better term, we'll use that. It's a blackmail of the resources on those federal lands? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll give you another good example. Um, uh, in uh, 1969, when the when the Congress wanted to limit the, uh, uh, the limit the growth of the federal government, there was a fellow by the name of George Hartzog, who at that time was the director of the National Park Service, and he said, "If you cut my budget, I'm going to close federal installations across the country." Mm-hmm. Um, and this became known as the Washington Monument Syndrome because he famously 
uh, promised to close the Washington Monument, but uh, he also had power over all the all the national parks in the country, and so people became concerned. If we don't give him the money, uh, he'll close down he'll close down the parks. So that was that was the kind of thing that the that the founders of the Constitution wanted to prevent. They wanted to ensure that the that the new states, the states west of uh, the original thirteen, would be admitted on an equal footing with the with the rest of the uh, the existing states. Now, now, that being said, let's talk about states for a little bit, and then I want to touch on, on the National Park uh, issue. Uh, do the states, individual states, um, have the authority, have the right to own property uh, that, that would normally go to, to an individual citizen like you and I? I mean, can the state garner uh, land for uh, the reason of accumulating power? I'm going to answer that question as a constitutional person, not not as a matter of policy. Okay. The answer is yes. States have what are called general police powers, and that includes the authority to uh, own property for any lawful government purpose. The federal government, by contrast, is supposed to be limited to certain enumerated powers. And so the federal government has the power to, to own land for those purposes I mentioned, for example, mm-hmm. offices for for tax collectors. But it's really hard to find a basis in the Constitution as to why the federal government should be owning millions of acres of ordinary grazing land, which could be held either by the state governments or maybe preferably by private owners. Now, you, you mentioned uh, in your writings that in in looking over the property clause, uh, in, in the in the constitution, it doesn't give, it doesn't say anything about the federal government's power to acquire land. No, it, it doesn't. Um, in order to justify the federal government acquiring land, you have to go to another part of the constitution that gives to Congress certain incidental. Uh, powers, but okay. there is in the Constitution an unqualified power to dispose. And when you look at the entire record, not just of the Constitution, of the constitutional debates, but also of some of the events that happened right after the uh, the Constitution was adopted, like the, the admission of new states like like Tennessee and Kentucky and Vermont, there was a general recognition that the federal government had the had the obligation to dispose of land that it was not going to use for proper purposes and to dispose of it for the general benefit of the people of the United States. Now, if, you know, uh, two things. One, President Obama is not the first to to acquire property, of course, uh, under the federal government. But I, I had a professor, an economics professor back in the 70s. I was very, very young when I went to college. But uh, he said <laughs> most the, of us, most of us were. Yeah. <laughs> Which explains some of the activity that goes on in college campuses. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> but I remember him saying, you know, and, and back then, I think the number was 12 or 14 percent or something like that. And he said, if the government sold all the land they owned west of the Mississippi, for cash to private owners, they could pay off the national debt. Now, back then, the national debt was only trillion dollars or so. It wasn't near twenty trillion like it is today. But how can can the government, uh, if they so choose, can they sell? I mean, President Obama isn't going to 
run an ad in the local newspaper saying acreage for sale. But how does that that work? Does the government ever sell land? Uh, Is it possible to, to reverse this trend at all? Well, theoretically, the duty of the federal government to disclose was recognized pretty universally up until 1976. In 1976, Congress passed a a law called the Federal Land Management Act, which essentially announced that the federal government was not going to be disposing of land on a regular basis anymore. Uh, sometimes the federal government will engage in a land swap. They'll, they'll want to acquire additional land for, say, a national forest, and so they'll, they'll sell land as, as part of that acquisition deal. Mm-hmm. But generally, they've entrenched themselves as by far the biggest landholder in the United States, and it's clear they have no they have no intention of doing that. Let me just clarify one other thing here. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to the proceeds from the sale of the federal of federal land, if the if the lands were more productive, and they would of course be more productive in private uh, hands or sure. or even in state hands, and there are many indica- indications of that, uh, that would also increase the ta- the tax take right. uh, to the federal government and help the payment of the of of the debt in that way. You'd have a more productive use of those lands. Now at this point, people start worrying and they say, well, does that mean <laughs> Does that mean that um, uh, that the two of us are advocating the sale uh, to the highest bidder of Yosemite National Park or <laughs> or, or Yellowstone? Yellowstone? Does that mean we're yeah. going to see condos, you know, in, in Rocky Mountain National Park? Right. And the answer is disposal can mean different things. For right. ordinary grazing land, you know, which to an Easterner would just look like wasteland, mm-hmm. uh, that can be uh, that can be sold to the highest bidder. But for environmental treasures, there are other ways to dispose. For example, it can it can be handed over to a state park service, mm-hmm. or it can be put into a perpetual conservation uh, trust. Right. Certain lands that have values that are not captured in the marketplace can, can be handled that way. I, I've spent a fair amount of time in, in Great Britain, as you probably know, having read my biography. Mm-hmm. And in Great Britain, treasured places are often not held by the government. They're held by an entity called the National Trust. It's a private nonprofit subject to certain laws, and they do, in my view, a better job of maintaining and protecting those properties for future generations and for their environmental values than the federal government does. If you you live in the West, if, if you live in a state like Colorado or Montana, you can see hundreds of thousands of acres of forest land owned by the federal government just devastated mm-hmm. devastated by wildfire and 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 with uh with with uh burnt out trees just left to rot or or uh, thousands of acres of beetle kill that is to say of trees mm-hmm. uh, that have been inadequately managed and so they're they're dead or dying because uh, because uh, noxious uh, insects have destroyed them. If you look, on the other hand, at the privately managed lands or yeah. the state managed lands, you see a much healthier situation. Yeah, absolutely. We've been speaking with Professor Rob Nadelson. He's a senior fellow in constitutional jurisprudence at the Heartland Institute and author of the book, The Original Constitution, What It Actually Said and Meant. 
and you can get that at Amazon. It's all over. Uh, Professor, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I know my producer ordered your book for me today. I'm slightly embarrassed. I haven't read it, but I promise I will. And I uh, hope we can give you a call again and, and go through some of your thoughts. I very much like that. I enjoy being on your show. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Up next, let's talk about uh, shoplifting in California just became a lot easier. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, I'm really glad we got California. Um... California is so progressive, liberal, democratic, politically correct that it makes a perfect uh, sociological laboratory for stupidity. A while back, the uh, legislatures in uh, uh, California passed Proposition 47. Now, the idea behind Proposition 47 was to lower lower the population in their prisons okay so the way to do that is to change some what they call nonviolent felonies to misdemeanors so you could commit what used to be a felony and now it's classified as a misdemeanor and a misdemeanor if you're a convicted felon out on uh you know either uh uh, done your time or out on bail or whatever. Uh, as long as you don't shoplift more than $950 at one time, if you're caught, um, it's a misdemeanor. So that ends the possibility of charging uh, you with a felony and, and a potential prison sentence. Now, what what happens is that uh, the criminals in California are actually a little bit smarter than the people in charge. Shoplifting has exploded in California. It's increased in, uh, let's see, Safeway, Target, Rite Aid, and CVS uh, at least 15%. And in some cases, shoplifting has doubled. They got criminals coming into their stores with calculators and they will steal 800 850 dollars worth according to the calculator and just run out the door now the police say well it's a misdemeanor theft it's not worth issuing a citation or arrest a uh, subject who would likely be immediately released because of overcrowding uh, overcrowding anyway so the police don't care the legislature doesn't care criminals don't care they're happy So the only people suffering are the small business owner. It's open season on shoplifting for the small business owner. Now, the good side of this, it absolutely worked. Prison population is down year over year significantly, but shoplifting is way up. So you can steal up to $950 in a California store, and if you get caught, it's a misdemeanor. If you don't get caught, then it's nothing. And you're likely not to get caught because the police said they're not going after it. 
So, once again, unintended consequences. These people don't understand human nature, economics, nothing. They understand nothing but their own power. Remember a week or so ago, we talked about, uh, this was out of our country, but we talked about the highest court in Italy saying it's not a crime to steal food if you're hungry. It's not a crime if you're hungry. How many times have we seen in this country the excuse presented for people committing crime because of their victimhood? Because they're a minority, because they needed the, the stuff, they wanted the stuff, they, they needed food, they needed drugs, whatever. And it's all society's fault. It's you and me. We, we are the supremacists. We, uh, we have created this. It's our fault for being who we are, for wanting to pay our bills, for wanting to have integrity, for wanting to be part of a community. And uh, they're just a, a poor lowly victim that has no choice but to do what they did. Now, this is also a form of private property rights being violated. It's a form of political correctness. You take one of us who has a job, doesn't consider themselves a victim. We steal something. We're going to jail. Doesn't matter what. But if uh, you fall under certain classifications, why you won't go to jail. This is also part of what we call the Ferguson effect. Remember Ferguson, Missouri? Police are are reaching a point where they're hesitant to use any discretion. They're hesitant to use judgment in preventing crime because they're just going to get sued. They'll lose their job. They may even go to jail. Absolutely incredible the amount of disrespect that has been cr- created in just a few short years in this country for our police force. We have seen, uh, I just read an article uh, this morning about uh, college students defacing a a tribute to policemen that said, Blue Lives Matter. And uh, the minorities on campus just destroyed that tribute to policemen and uh, said it was racist and... uh, Uh, I hate crime and all that kind of stuff. This administration and this Congress has created this divide. And in building their own power, they have encouraged it so that people will vote for them and support them and give them money. And and that's that's the, the issue, is their own power. Now, you know me, I don't support certainly not on air, any candidate running for president uh, this fall. In fact, I'm kind of falling into the category of none of the above. But we have to look and see what they're saying, what's their motivation, and what are they likely to do if they get in office. Food for thought. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country.
The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 